John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 122.NU0603, certificate number 19544, Bill W. Hi, everybody. My name's Tara, and uh, I'm an alcoholic. Hi. I want to thank the group for inviting me to speak. And, um, I want to thank one of my so we've talked about a lot of uh, different religious movements, some that we might uh, qualify as cults. We, we like weird uh, sects and Sex. cults and homegrown uh, uh, charismatic prophets of all kinds. Right. And we've referred, I think, uh, tangentially to the, the various practices that you and I have, personal practices, personal religious practices. And You're a black Muslim. Yep, that's right. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> that's right. Elijah Muhammad is my one true prophet. You're always eating granola or – no, wait. What's the thing they sell? Oh, uh, some kind of – Muesli. Hand pie. Yeah. Uh, strawberry tarts. I, I have no idea what it is. But you are a, you're a member of a, of, a, of a religion, one of the major religions. Not one of the major ones. Well, you're a – It's, it's subs- like triple A, <laughs> level religion. But it is, a, it is a religion. It's recognized as a religion by the religious uh, uh, board. It's, <laughs> it's got the stamp of approval, Kachunk. Do you go to church on Sunday? Well, here you go. I uh, I consider myself a Christian, which is yes. really one of the one of the bigger religions. That is a larger religion, not as big as Islam or um, lazy youthful secularism. Wait, are you saying that Christianity is not as big as Islam? Is that not true? Some may argue that Christianity is the religion practiced by the largest number of people in the world. Yes, that's right. Finally, <laughs> something goes our way. Uh, What's the, well, how close is it to I, – I thought Islam was going to be like a billion people or more. Some estimates uh, say that there are two over 2 billion practicing Christians in the world, and there are 1.3 billion Muslims. But I feel like your average Muslim is like at least twice as devout as your average on-the-books Christian. Well, that's so. If you're measuring in what are, what is a unit of religious devotion? I, I think prayer, uh, prayer, 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 prayers per day. You're, <laughs> the, the Muslims are always going to win in prayers per day. But no, you live in a secular city, Seattle, so it doesn't it doesn't seem like uh, Christians are busy, uh, you know, puttering about here in Seattle doing much self-flagellating or wearing of hair shirts or whatever it is that Christians do. You don't see that. But uh, there are Christians all around the world who are much much busier, like. 
in Nigeria, for instance, there are an awful lot of Christians. Busy, busy, busy Brazil. with Christianity. Brazil. By the way, we're going to get letters. It's bean pies is the bean thing, pies. nation That's of right. Islam. I knew that. It's like strawberry tarts, but not delicious. Well, beans, no, they're sugary. Bean pies are, they have sugar in them. Right, but would you yeah. rather have a strawberry tart or a I'd bean rather, pie? I'd rather have a strawberry Gun tart. Gun to your head, what do you want? I'm not actually a, a, a black Muslim. So. Right, but what I'm saying is there's an opening here for some other religious group just to choose a kind of food that's more delicious than a bean pie. Well, it's interesting. Like, like the Girl Scouts have. <laughs> it's interesting uh, that you say it this way because, as you know, different Christian uh, sects do appeal to uh, to congregants or appeal to people by offering them you know, variations on the theme, right? It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You're selling a lifestyle. A lifestyle, right. Is that, is that right? Like, well, it seems like you, you study, you're selling, if you, if you take Christianity and you break it down into its component parts. Which are? Uh, which Carbohydrates, <laughs> starches. Right. Uh, carbon, uh, hydrogen. Uh, the, 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 the story of any major religion is, I think, maybe by design or maybe by the nature of the inscrutability of God, uh, religious stories are somewhat uh, complicated and have a lot of different hot takes. So there is, I, I, in my experience at least, no religion where there, where there aren't innumerable sects that spin off as a result of different plausible interpretations of the original experience of the, of the, either the founder of the religion, the, 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 uh, the prophets that that were receiving the messages either from God directly or through his emissaries or through uh, meditation or, or whatever. At first, it all seems like it's the hot takes are all doctrinal. Like in the first century, everybody's mad about, you know, what age you should baptize somebody or, right. uh, you know— if modalism is good or bad, you know, you get all these heresies right. and today it really, nobody really cares. It seems like you're just going to pick the pastor who has the nice voice or which mega church has the best, uh, guitar sound. Like you're just going by amp. Yeah. Those basically. Are, the initial, uh, doctrinal disputes are really small. And then as the church expands and gets translated into many different languages, then you get the real doctrinal d- disputes, like is transubstantiation real or... But I'm just saying that all gets very quickly replaced by tribalism. Not quickly. I mean, it, well, ta- it takes a while. <laughs> it takes a there while. Had, there were thousands of Christian heresies to enjoy, but there was just less going on then. It's true. And and and, and back to your initial comment, I think uh, I think from the United States, we we uh, it's difficult for us to appreciate how many Muslims in the Muslim world are actually not really very devout. I feel like we discussed this when we talked about the Qibla, you yeah. know, that the, they're, they're pumping up their numbers just as much as we are. Well, there are an awful lot of Muslims that are just as casual practitioners of their religion as your sort of average go-to-church-on-Sunday American that doesn't really – Follow maybe all of the teachings of Christ religiously. Is this the woke take on Islam? Well, they're, they're just, you know what? They're just like us. They're lazy. <laughs> they don't, sometimes they feel like eating pork. It's, it's from my own personal experience. Like I've traveled in Muslim countries and have experienced the majority of people in those places are just trying to get on down the road and they have a, they have just as sanguine a take on their own religion as most people in America do. And there are, evangelists and devout uh, practitioners, but an awful lot of, it's just as common in the streets of, of um, Marrakesh to meet a young person who rolls his eyes at his overly devout grandmother 
as it as you'd be likely to see in a bar in Portland. So, uh, so 1.3 billion uh, practitioners of Islam, and then coming up in third place. I don't even know what's in third. One billion non-religious That's what I said. People. Lazy millennials. Yeah. My, my religion is lazy millennials. Secular, agnostic, atheist, and then uh, non- but, they're, but they're better than everyone else because they're not. They're being good That's right. for its own reward. They're That's not afraid right. of hell like, no, they're not. like, like us losers. <laughs> no, they're living in a hell of their own design now. <laughs> uh, 900 million Hindus, which suggests that there are... A couple hundred million people in India that are going their own way, that are over there in the non-religious category. Man, and they used to be in third. You know who's uh, mad about secular? To see secularists in third is the Hindus. Well, they've they've got the most to lose. Although, if you take if you take like all the Buddhists and all the people in China who would be Buddhist if it hadn't been, uh, oh, that's going to be hard to adjudicate, right? It's tough. But you've got three hundred. You've got four hundred million people practicing Chinese traditional religion. Which is a sort of herbs, her- herbal it's, paganism. Unlike my religion, it is an herb. It's, it's a, a it's a it's country religion. It's lemongrass, yeah. I think. And then uh, three hundred seventy-five million Buddhists, and then there are three hundred million people practicing some form of uh, indigenous or primal religion. According See, to this statistic, seems a little racist to lump them together, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna. Yeah. I don't want to cancel you. And then uh, there are like traditional African uh, religions in the in the hundreds. Hundreds of millions of people practicing, but not like, you know, not up to, let's say more than 100, less than 300. Would you like to walk back your assertion that Mormonism is a major world religion at this point? Well, at, at, at 15 million or so? Whatever. Is it only 15 million? Something like that. That's basically the same number of Jews in the world, 15 million. Oh, we're neck and neck. Yeah, that's right. Mormons and Jews, like on the... On in the final stretch, only one can survive. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to need to reproduce some more. Uh, but... But of the, let's see, of the f- 2 billion uh, Christians in the world, let's see, let's see how the, the denominations break out. It's, I think Catholics is over a billion. And I know that because Jonathan Price says it to Anthony Hopkins in The Two Popes, which I just saw. But that was a, that was a while back, right? Oh, yes, you are absolutely it's right. It's like 1.2 or something. F- Fifty percent of Christians identify as Catholic, but that's because each Christian is one half Catholic on one side of their body. Oh, they only have to do half the sign of the cross. Is this another part of transubstantiation <laughs> that I don't fully understand? Half of my body turns into Catholic <laughs> when I eat the wafer. Um, you have uh, let's see here within the uh, within the uh, the Reformation Christians. Let's see, let's see. Catholics are one point three billion. People, exactly as Jonathan Price says to Anthony Hopkins in the Netflix film <laughs> *The Two Popes*. It's so crazy that they would get that right. Uh, there, uh, there are 18 million in all of the Eastern Catholic churches, Greek Orthodox, which are Russian Orthodox, an awful lot of them, the Byzantine Coptic Orthodox, ones Ethiopian Orthodox, Georgian Macedonians, uh, and then you have uh, 18 million independent Catholics. Wait, what does that even? That's like there's like, like they use birth control. No, it's like <laughs> the, they're a, apostolic churches, the old Catholic church, uh, I see. non-Roman Catholics. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then there are 900 million Protestants, which is an awful lot of Protestants, and and, and six of them go to church, <laughs> and yet, and yet, <laughs> they still feel like they're everywhere. Um, 
So a hundred million Baptists. Uh, and that includes like Baptists in Tanzania and Brazil. Well, why wouldn't it? Myanmar. Are you implying it should not? Well, it just feels like all Baptists are in Texas. There are no. no those are Southern Baptists. I, uh, I think if there's as long as there's Baptists in Tanzania, you cannot say that Georgian Baptists are Southern Baptists. Right. They're like uh, Northern Baptists. Sure, compared to the Baptists T- of Tanzania. Tanzania is way down there. There are ninety million Lutherans. Which uh, which surprises me that that, that Lutheranism would be. Well, I mean, Mi- Minneapolis is a very large city. It's it's bustling. It's true, but those skyways are full of Lutherans. <laughs> Hanover also probably has a lot of Lutherans, uh, and so on and so on. An awful lot. There are sixty to eighty million Methodists. My mother was a uh, raised a Methodist. Does she no longer consider herself a, a Methodist? Uh, she loves the hymns. Hmm. But I think that she believes she she believes in too much reincarnation and other. My mother has adopted the modern uh, sort of polyglot uh, religion. Add add the thing you just heard about that you like. Yeah, or just sure. like I've read a lot of books, and she believes in in UFOs. She believes in. You can um, be a Methodist and believe in aliens. I, I assume can so. Can you? Oh, really? Do you think Do you think the different synods have announced different? Uh, Different findings, different takes, different doctrinal. <laughs> I was at so you mentioned the hymns. I was at a Methodist church on Christmas Eve, and the hymn book is is ginormous. There were like right. six hundred and seven hundred hymns. They're famous for their hymns. So many. I mean, how could you learn six hundred to seven hundred? You've ever been? You've been in a band? Could you play from a list of six hundred to seven hundred songs? No, but there are musicians who can. I mean, Robin Hitchcock. All you have to do is name a song, and he can play it. Really? Because that guy's it, got like 28 albums or something. He'll make up the lyrics, but if you're like, hey, it's, you know. It's dial a song with Robin Hitchcock. <laughs> Did you know that Presbyterianism is just our, uh, is just the American way of describing the Calvinist church? So Calvinism is alive and well in the world. It's just called Presbyterianism. Uh, did you know that Presbyterians is an anagram of Britney Spears? What? It's very important. And you're telling me that UFOs aren't part of the Christian liturgy. Also, best in prayer and priest nearby. Interesting. I guess that would be Presbyterian singular. You need the extra S to make Britney Spears. Otherwise, it's just Britney Spear. Is this something you knew already? No, I just can't do that on the fly. <laughs> Can you imagine some some Scrabble guy doing that on the fly? This this would be the podcast now. You say a sentence and he just anagrams it into, into gibberish. There are 20 million Seventh-day Adventists. Or 140 million one-day Adventists. <laughs> is this So is the whole show just you saying numbers now? Like, what are we even doing? I'm loving this, though. What we're doing is we're talking about, uh, we're talking about religion. We're talking about Christianity. Uh, I fall in the category of a non-practicing person, right? I do not have. No, a, you're, you're uh, going to hell. That's right. I don't. I don't have a religion. Uh, I I've been a student of of comparative religions as part of my comparative history of ideas education. But that just means you don't have a church or a congregation. It doesn't mean you're not interested in in spirituality or faith. Right. And and I think my whole life, like a lot of questioning people or curious people, I've been unsatisfied with any particular answer, including the particular answer of uh, agnosticism or atheism or uh, uh, even the um, even the kind of d- the generalism of a generalized spirituality. All of those things have no- – nothing has sated my curiosity, but also my curiosity has never dimmed. It's a problem that all these organizations provide answers, and churches see that as, as the best thing they can do. Like, this is why you need us. In tough times, we have – the answers. 
But really, I mean, I wonder if that's what uh, one way in which they are out of step with modern thought, because today people, they're like little J.J. Abramses. They just want the mysteries. Right. When the answer comes, they're like, oh, I actually liked, I liked all the suspense better. Well, we need more suspense in religion is what I'm saying. It's very difficult Ticking to- Ticking bombs under every pew. It's very difficult to to maintain credibility when you're offering definitive answers because those answers now have to conform to what we know across a whole spectrum of science and uh, data driven experience. So if you you know if if as a religion you make a claim and it doesn't square with with particle physics and it doesn't square with molecular biology and it doesn't square with what you know whatever the latest Johns Hopkins uh, set of experiments Something is behavioral. It's very difficult for someone to to say I'm going to suspend disbelief. I'm and 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 a lot of these religions depend on faith, right? A sure. suspension, a, 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 like a a very clear cut suspension of disbelief. There is they're really in the language. They are acknowledging that hey, we're providing you with certainty, but you are not going to feel certainty because that's not just how spiritual matters work. You are still going to have to. Take a leap. You're going to have to take a leap. And that was easier to do at a time when most people didn't have access to such a broad uh, spectra of, a mat- of, of, of information. You probably wouldn't have even had access to multiple religions. I mean, think right. how religion, I think, is still kind of uppity about this because they used to have – every religion had its own geographic monopoly. And as soon as one person in an odd hat said, here's the answer – Nobody said, but what about, or let me double check against, or who, right. but who agrees with you? This you, guy with the other hat. Right. Yeah. Like, as long as there's only one hat, theology is so easy. And it was not that long ago, even in, even in, uh, even in urban uh, communities, that there was not a tremendous diversity of opinion or experience um, within a neighborhood or within even a town. But definitely – the rise of literacy has made this more of more and more of an issue. It's it's um, religion spreads much more easily in a kind of uh, uh, in a format where your wisdom or your teachings are being received verbally, orally in a, in the context of a sermon rather than sitting and studying a text. And, sure, studying gives you agency. Right. A, a listener a listener hears what he or she is told, and yet. Uh, as we sit and debunk religion, and as we uh, as is that what we did, uh, as modern people sit and 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 wrestle with religion, it still does. Uh, it's still enormously popular because it does fulfill a need, right? Uh, there are complexities in uh, not. Uh, we're no longer using, I don't think, religion to explain the rains uh, or to explain like why there's sadness. Um, Definitely sadness more than rain. Sadness more than rain. And and our emotional lives remain unknowable to a certain extent. Um, our interactions with one another, our hopes and fears, our dreams. Sense of purpose. Yeah, exactly. Uh, those things are – those things resist data-driven analysis. They resist uh, codification. They're, uh, they're very individual. They're extremely individual even in a, within a family. So even if you know where lightning comes from um, – why it struck you. Yeah, where's the lightning in your life? Right, exactly. is the big question. And so religion remains very popular, um, that, you know, that one billion people notwithstanding. Is this uh, an ad read? <laughs> <laughs> and so... So use promo code slash omnibus at your local church or mosque. 
But as someone uh, personally who was very interested in religion but never found a, a doctrine that that appealed even beyond the, the first blush of of sort of critical appraisal, right? Like, is this what I'm looking for? It doesn't seem to be. Like, uh, I'm, what I'm looking for is an explanation of of the ineffable or the unknowable. Mm-hmm. And this seeks uh, religions tend to seek to make the unknowable knowable. And as you said, that isn't. Uh, really what I'm looking for, what a lot of modern people are looking for. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, any answer is going to be an answer and maybe you don't want an answer. Right. And I, I, you've read William James, William James, I'm assuming the uh, varieties of religious experience. I have never read varieties of religious experience. It's the I'm one William James you work. haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm almost done with it. Do, do not spoil the ending. Uh, that was a that was an attempt on his part to compare and contrast religions and try to find what is essential about them across the broad scope. What did he find? What did he decide? Uh, he had a lot. There were a lot of insights, and in particular, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, insights about the way religion or the the way a religious fervor takes a hold of a of someone that that eventually is known as a prophet, but is initially known as a heretic. I mean, he took many, many instances of religious feeling and tried to examine it as a, you know, as a post enlightenment thinker and compare religions to try to see where the, where essential truths are. And this is the, the motivation behind comparative religion. It isn't, the, the desire to compare religions is very seldom a desire to debunk them. And it's, it's not even a beauty pageant. You're not trying to. They're not competing. No, it's a, it's you want a, to find the root, right? A belief, a, a kind of post scientific method belief or post philosophical enlightenment belief that if you compare them, perhaps you can winnow the truth away from the from what became the kind of the dressing, the the uh, the liturgy of it, and find like what it what is the what what is it. Is there something fundamental there? And you're an enlightenment guy, but you like the fervor of it, which is maybe not the most fashionable thing about religion, the uh, the ecstatic experience. Well, and, and the ecstatic experience is kind of at the heart of, uh, of some, uh, some very crucial aspects of the power of religion. Sure. Um, it would not exist if—, if- some people couldn't feel that and transmit the excitement to others. And it's a very small group of people that end up, uh, and this was some, some of what William James discovered, was that the people that actually feel ex- or have ecstatic experiences end up being totemic figures within their religion. Because for every one of them, there's 100 people who have the hole in their life, but right. will never feel that. 10,000 or 100,000 people who, huh. who want to hear... Want to bask in the light of someone who is who has an ecstatic uh, experience of God, but uh, but they're not they're not having that experience personally, and also they don't want to get too close to that ecstatic person because they seem imbalanced. Like most people that have an ecstatic experience of God are asked to leave the temple, and it's only when they wander in the desert. Right, they're they're not usually the authorized ecstatic experience receiver. <laughs> right, ecstatic. There's, there's a chain of command here. Jesus, <laughs> ecstatic experiences are are very threatening to to power structures. 
um, to existing priests. Uh, and it's only later that those people's experiences are reformed and codified and turned into canon. Uh, but those are those are the experiences that are the most um, well. They're the ones that they're shape, and, shape yeah. and form religion and and ultimately culture. Like right now, we're living in a world where uh, a lot of religion is used to reinforce real conservatism, where all those initial prophets were radical, revolutionary people in their own time who were overturning you know the entire power structure of their of their era. Uh, and now they're, we don't, the practice of those religions doesn't usually um, take that it same could. form. It could. It you could. Know, South American liberation theology, for example, in Catholicism. I mean, we may be just living in, an, I don't know if there's anything endemic about established religion or if we just happen to be living in a time when there's a, there's, there's an association between conservative thought and religion. I think that religions get more conservative as they collect money and followers. Well, absolutely. I mean, like, like any institution. <laughs> right. It's, it's always the evangelists that are the, that have the least to lose, I guess. Um, and so, so can get maybe closer to the essence of whatever that ecstatic experience is, whatever that, that transformative human experience that, that, that sometimes we need to shake, the tree a little bit. Even in a secular society, people still want that totemic figure, but in the absence of a prophet, it's just going to be uh, a bishop. Card- no, it's going <laughs> <it's gonna laughs> to be uh, uh, Frank Ocean, or right. it's going to be Bernie, or it's going to be Trump, or, you know, people still want a guide. People's, yes, people still want a big head on the sign. And and there are also a lot of people, and and I think you see it, you see it extensively now. People that are seeking an authentic and personal religious experience, unmitigated by uh, intermediary, and that isn't that isn't. Um, I, I think that the, the popularity of that now is is somewhat due to this uh, admixture of all religions, kind of in a in a bubbling pot where it's like I'd like one. Uh, you know, one from column Christianity and one from column Buddhism and one from column New Age spirituality. Your canonical like cafeteria, right? Uh, acolyte. All, all kind of born out of a desire to have some to see some shining light themselves personally, rather than to have it to 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 have a set of rules kind of uh, down from on high. And of course that's not incentivized in the major religious traditions because it, it would be dangerous for sure. too for too many followers to have their own unmediated experience. How are you going to pass the collection they're plate? They're not going to they're not going to come and put anything in the plate. <laughs> that's right. I mean and they won't agree on stuff for long, so it's a boundary maintenance and a and a, a conformity and heterogeneity homogeneity problem. I think also in, in contemporary society, the access to and ec- exploration, the discovery of uh, psychoactive drugs in, in uh, by the mainstream. I mean, psychoactive right. drugs have been used to facilitate religious experiences since prehistoric times. You can find uh, even in cave paintings evidence that uh, psilocybin mushrooms were being used by, uh, you know, by 
Neanderthals. The, the pictures, the cave paintings get weirder next to the glowing moss that, that Og was licking. <laughs> That's right. Well, there's just a, you know, there's like an ox and there's a man with a spear and then there's a guy with a hacky sack. And then That's, there's. Yeah, suddenly the ox has like rainbows and stars coming out of it. You can tell. Um, like that, that, uh, like a, a, a drug that is, mi- that's used to facilitate, uh, like a religious experience. And maybe even mimics the exact, the, the kind of response you see in the brain when people have ecstatic religious experience. Well, that, and that's a very interesting observation. Those drugs are called entheogens. Entheogens. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know this word. And I think that there's a lot of, un, uh, a lot of kind of awareness and understanding among people within the kind of drug, uh, drugs as religious facilitators community that, and Timothy Leary talked about this. A lot of people that, that did LSD experimentation um, in the mid 20th century. Uh, It was, it was very clear to them that the drug, the drug would give you a glimpse of what um, was accessible to you. If you had a lasting and, and um, methodical spiritual awakening and transformation, the drug would give you a, mm. a glimpse, but you couldn't sustain it. The user has the sense that it's always still out of reach. Well, if you're just getting there by way of the drug. So if you take LSD, you can see you, you, the curtains open and you see like the light, but then the curtains close. And well, you just take more LSD. This is not hard. The, I think the, the, the revelation is that it's accessible to you only through a path, only through the hard work that – and this is a comparative religion experience too. Like, yes, if you're prepared to do the work, you can achieve you – can, you can discover the light. Uh, but to, to simply have – when lightning strikes, it is not ever sufficient – for the remainder of your life to just have had lightning strike. You then need no. to pursue a practice. Everybody I know who has ever left a religious tradition, you know, does not rewrite history. They, they'll tell you about all the good experiences they had when they felt close to the divine or whatever. They just now interpret it differently because it was just a flash. Right. Right. And that, and, and, and these, these, um, these endotheogenic drugs, um, they, they are able to, approximate or, or I'm sorry, not approximate. Maybe they are able to engender that lightning strike sensation. And you really do see, uh, through to, through the gauze, I guess. Um, but then the, the realization that you need to then do the work. This means we need to make, we need to make new drugs for Protestants that kind of, uh, approximate just a really boring sermon. (laughs) Like what, what? What drug do you take to give you that kind of not, that, nodding off in church? That feeling of like, vibe. is it? Oh, it's only thirty more minutes, and then C- we, counting the boards between the stained glass windows. Then we go to the pancake restaurant. <laughs> uh, but religion also performs a lot of actual function, right? It isn't just uh, it isn't just hand waving. It's not just some. It's not just a money. Collecting there's operation. personal improvement. There's community building. There's a service uh, focus. Um, you know, on, both on the individual and the community level. And those are all the the uh, those are all the ways in which Mormonism operates in the world. But there are. Are you, are you <laughs> saying I have a Mormon blinkered view of this? <laughs> You're like, there's wait, service. There's community. No, there's Jello pudding. I would say personal improvement, community service are what any religious tradition should be offering. Or what is the point? Well, there. 
there is a great need for religion uh, by desperate people, by people who, are, who have reached the end of their rope, mm. right? Conversion often happens or, or profound religious experience often happens in times of tremendous suffering, deprivation, when you're on your knees and, and casting up to heaven saying, why, why? I mean, I would. I everybody who has ever served a two-year Latter-day Saint mission sees this in practice. You never get to talk to anybody who's normal and for whom things are going well because those people don't want to talk to a a proselytizer. Sure, they've got their own thing. They've got their own religion that they're barely uh, adhering to. Yeah, and their religion is you know that things are going okay for me. Like right. that's that's what's first and foremost in their head ahead of any spiritual concern. You only talk to people for whom things are going badly. You spend two years with crisis people. Right. And that's, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right that that is an appeal of religion is it's a, it's a lifeline. And you're offering them a salve, a, a balm for their suffering, but there are a lot of different kinds of suffering, right? There are people who are, you know, who lost a child and are wondering why they have a trauma that, um, that can never fully heal, but through, through through religion, through God, through through kind of a, a an acceptance that there are, there's a higher purpose, there's mercy in the world that the that maybe the child lives on somewhere in the ether. These things become a comfort, but there are other kinds of crisis, spiritual crisis that are ongoing, that are not they're not traumatic events that need an explanation. They aren't a, kind of a vague sense of purposelessness. But they are actual, um, they're actual like living trauma in a person, and by those I mean uh, people that have that uh, that have real psychological problems. If you were someone with schizophrenia before the advent of psychiatry, before there was an uh, uh, an explanation of it, when it was seen as a spiritual malady, it wasn't just that that your mom and dad wanted you to find religion. I imagine that that uh, the hope that God could relieve you of this suffering drove people toward the church. It's quite literal in Christianity. People, people have devils in them right. when they exhibit those kind of behaviors, and those can be literally cast out by God. And before the advent of... Uh, of psychology or any kind of like a, a attempt to analyze these things outside of a religious context, almost any uh, personality or, or experiential problem that was causing you suffering, you sought relief from that in not, uh, not just, uh, I think a lot of people seek relief just in the, the methodology of a church. Like if I just go, if I say the right things, if I, if I, um, if I follow the, these sort of, it's a structure. It's structure. My life is seems chaotic, but what if I just repeat these almost could be arbitrary steps? Right. Like, well, can I get through the day thanks to prayer and so forth? But but other people are hoping, or there are, there are quite a few people I think in in extreme situations that are hoping for a, a truly transformative experience, a, a lightning strike, something that will that will change their. Uh, spiritual DNA and and truly relieve them of what they what they feel is is suffering right if you were someone with pedophilia who just who recognized that it was a 
that it was a crime in practice, but could not. In a, yeah, inseparable part of myself and life. Right. You would, you would, you know, bow before God and say, please just relieve me of this suffering. Why is it here? Why, why, why did it, it, was it put in me and mm-hmm. how can I exercise it? Um, what do I have to do? Cause it's not as simple as just give me a practice, uh, to keep me from sinning. Uh, you, you really are suffering from the mal, the, the spiritual malady. And I assume in general, religion does not have a great track record at some of these, at some of these. Well, at least pedophilia, it doesn't. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> right. <laughs> if anything, <laughs> it may be exacerbating it. Uh, and, and, and this speaks to how unusual it is to actually have a transformative religious experience, to actually, uh, to actually be struck by lightning. I think, um, I think it's, it's exceedingly rare that it, that it really happened. We see a lot of people who exhibit signs or, or, you know, perform um, like a profound transformation. It's, you know, it's, it's part of some religious services, right? What if it's not a malady? What if it's a moral awakening? Do you believe in an Ebenezer Scrooge like uh, moment of, uh, wait, I don't have to be like this. What if I were a generous person? I do. And, and those are all on continuum, of course, right. but, but also like every kind of awakening like that, it then requires that you put the rubber to the road. There is no lightning strike where you are instantly transformed and then find virtuous action to be effortless. You can be transformed in a moment, but the but virtuous action is always going to be a difficult practice, not it, just for it people. It sure is for me. Yes, I know. I, mean, <laughs> I see you every day struggle. You're like, two die Dr. Peppers? No. It's more like, no, don't, don't say something mean online. Don't say something snarky <laughs> online. Oh, I'll just, I'll just do just this once. Be gone, devil. <laughs> I cast Twitter out of my operating system. In in my experience, as someone who uh, who in his young life walked many paths and uh, and was eager to listen to anyone uh, who kind of spoke what they considered a truth, right? I spent a lot of time sitting cross legged in punk rock squat houses listening to guys explain to me how the world worked. They were delighted to have an audience. Uh, They loved it. And I, and I love, I would listen to anybody. You know, if you had, if you felt like you had a story to tell, I was, I was there because I wanted, because I did believe that, um, that there was wisdom to be gleaned from listening to everyone. And I spent a lot of time sitting in airports, listening to Harry Krishna's explain, uh, what their story was. And, you know, the guy that was handing out, Chick tracks. I would stop and spend an hour listening to them explain. To me, this is a story about how, how much free time you had. I had a lot of free time. <laughs> I had a lot of free time, and 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 a lot of. I mean, it, it wasn't just um, it wasn't just like vacant curiosity. I I also felt like. Is it because you thought this might have something to teach me, or because oh, this is a person, this is a human being? You you, you like people? Do you just want to get to the bottom of that person? I, I definitely. I definitely enjoy getting to the bottom of people, but no, I believed that there were govern, governing principles to the world. And I believed as someone who, who didn't, who, who had a somewhat agnostic uh, feeling about religion that I could not be agnostic about um, 
the music of the spheres, right? Sure, They're, it's a big it's a big deal if a higher power exists. To and to say you can't just say ah, this is unknowable. I'm just going to play Mario Kart. Yeah, to to examine to look up at the night sky and say I can I can say anything conclusive about it at all. Um, and in particular, when you think about the difficulty that we have with the with unified theories of any kind, with squaring, um, you know, squaring string theory with, with sure. Einsteinian uh, physics. I mean, why does any of it exist? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why do I have consciousness that I perceive as an individual? Right. Are we alone, et cetera. And so all of these, all of these questions that they're intriguing, I think to any, any thinking person and, when you combine them with the inscrutability of emotion and the fact that it, that your emotion is real and is at least within itself within its own language consistent even those of us who to to someone outside seem to be acting irrationally within our emotional lives it feels rational it feels like we are we are internally consistent and acting according to what we perceive to be true. So you combine all that together. And if you can't square, I mean, if you, you can't square um, like string theory with particle physics, which I can't, you need to also be able to square that with country Western music. Otherwise it's not a unified theory, right? I mean, you're exactly right. The kind of emotions you have listening to music um, seem like a very pure way to access these kind of questions, even though the, you know, the rational link is, is hard to see, but you want to have an answer that meets it all. That meets it all. Or at least uh, at least puts you in the middle somewhere. Now, in my experience, and we've talked about this a lot uh, on the show, and in, I've talked about it a lot in various places, I, uh, I got very into drinking and drugs at a pretty young age. I mean, not the youngest age, but um, I got drunk for the first time when I was nine. Uh, that I didn't continue to get drunk from nine on. I but, wasn't allowed. I wasn't allowed <laughs> to have chocolate cake until I was ten. So, <laughs> but by the time I was up uh, the blood. by the time I was fifteen, I was a I was a, a regular drinker and a, and a heavy drinker from early times. Growing up in Alaska, there's a lot of hard drinking, but there is hard drinking all around the world. Uh, and I found that it suited me. My Father was an alcoholic. My older brother was. My grandfather was. Does that? Uh, are you saying it, 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 on some uh, genetic level you have a predisposition to it, or just that having seen it modeled, you knew how to be that kind of a man? Well, I didn't see it modeled because my father stopped drinking before I was born, huh. and my brother didn't live with us, and my grandfather was dead. So uh, there's a there is. I mean, in in um, in trying to diagnose alcoholism and trying to ascertain alcoholism, ascertain what it is. There are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of <laughs> writing on it. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of science, a lot of Charles Bukowski books. And there is, and there are a lot of strong opinions about whether or not it is a, um, an inherited disease, whether or not it is a spiritual malady, whether or not there are plenty of people who will tell you it's just a lack of willpower. Well, I was I was going to ask, do you consider it uh, like one of these chronic crises, one of these chronic maladies that cries out for meaning that you were talking about? Well, is that how it feels at, at some point? It is um, – when, when you are a, a heavy drinker and then find yourself unable to 
for lack of a better term, control your drinking. Unable to be a normal person right, it anymore. Really, it really, it's not just the drinking. It informs everything in your life. It throws a lot of those questions into bold relief because you, um, no one starts out, or rather, few people start out with the with the single minded intention to destroy their lives. Um, it's a pretty slow form, a slow and ugly and expensive form of destroying your life when you can you could just drive your car it's off. Very, the road. It's very inefficient, right? And a lot of you know causes a lot more collateral damage. And and typically, people that are that uh, that drink heavily also have i mean they have active minds um it's uh it's they're quieting inner voices in many cases yeah or? and there's a there they they tend to in fact be of a, a fair, fairly curious class of people uh creative people they're um they are engaged what do you think the mechanism is there are they are they trying to uh experience new States of mind, are they... If you sit with any group of alcoholics or people who know alcoholics, you'll find a thousand different explanations. Yeah, and that's... within my own family, alcoholism is used as, I mean, with my, my, my uncle and cousins, uh, almost anything can be explained simply by one person in the room going, well, alcohol, and then everybody nods sagely. Uh, that is used to explain uh, the movement of the planets in, in my family. I don't believe that the planets move because of alcohol. Certainly not from drinking in your family no. because the planets must've been moving before the first coal mining Roderick accidentally left his, That's right. his apple juice. In the Presumably sun they were, although we cannot know for sure. <laughs> uh, but, but the, there is a, you know, there's a moral component to drinking. I, uh, to to uh, alcohol and drug abuse. Um, what would you say are the moral principles that are being violated or or tested? Well, it, it it isn't so much that they're being violated or tested, but that the um, that the drug use and abuse affect one at a moral level. Uh, your um, it is a it is a disease of the spirit. If anything, it's very difficult to point to the human body and find where the disease of alcoholism is located. You can't direct a, no one particular organ is creating some antibodies uh, to fight alcohol, right? It's not a disease like leukemia. Right. Um, it's a disease of the spirit somehow. It's, a, it's so holistic that it affects everything about you and you experience it more on an emotional and moral level. Yeah. Well, um, it, it, uh, it is, uh, it, it, when you see someone affected by alcoholism, what you're not, what you're seeing is not someone who is incapacitated by the decay of their cells. Right. It's not, it's not their liver. No, it's their, personality it's their spirit it's their it's their self that is um that's suffering from a malady and is it all the same story or does it is it very does it feel like it's very individual based on the person or does everyone essentially turn into the same new alcoholic person well that is a super good question and that kind of brings us to the topic of our show um finally yes that's right 
And I have no, it's, we're about an hour and a half into the show. I, think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember what the topic was. I don't remember a time when I have not been doing this intro. <laughs> um, we, as I said at the beginning of the show, we've talked about a lot of sort of uh, American Christian sects that arose in the 19th and early 20th century to a lot of them little communes and yeah. communities. We think that's fun. We do. And it's, and it, and it, in some ways it seems to reflect a kind of, a native Americanism, a desire to have a new religion that, that, um, that takes into consideration all this new information that we have about the world. Disruption. We've disrupted government right. in, with the American experiment. Next up, the church of England. And yeah, that's right. Now we're going to form an Oneida cult and we're going to make silverware up here. We're or, disrupt Methodism. And as a part of that American tradition, uh, into the 20th century, you know, it's also part of a Protestant tradition where, where uh, an, an American Baptist tradition, where the idea of uh, no intermediary between you right. and God is it's a, not a shadowy organization. Yeah, it's a it's a profound uh, power. I think of these evangelical religion or of of protest religions. It's more future. Uh, it's more future proofed than um, nope. Just imagine there's a big government like apparatus that uh, moderates your relationship to God, and, and just kind of trust that everything will go okay. <laughs> and that's and that's I think what you do in town square religion, right? You don't you don't want um, you don't want direct contact with God if all you're trying to do is sell hardware uh, on Main Street. Mm-hmm. But if you're out on the frontier, if you're experiencing uh, like a a um, an unvarnished, unmitigated life. If you're out there, you know, nose in the wind. Well, think of the sense of possibility that comes with just being able to, nothing exists till you build it. Right. Uh, uh, in America, in the early part of the 20th century, a man by the name of Frank Bachman was, uh, he was a Lutheran, ordained Lutheran minister and was in the course of kind of, a, again, a very active Curious early life was was trying to find a a um, a parish where he could be the valued uh, spiritual leader. He wanted to he wanted to be in a big congregation. He didn't want to be sidelined out in uh, in some parish church. He was kind of a young hot rod, and um, and in the course of his sort of pursuing um, pursuing his own career, he developed a normal. Uh, amount of sort of resentments against people that stood in his way. And where are we? American Midwest? Yeah. He's a, he's a Pennsylvanian hmm. as so much of omnibus uh, is uh, just about Pennsylvania. We are the official podcast of the state of Pennsylvania. We're um, on the license plate. You know, and he's part of that, just like that Allentown, Pennsylvania too, just that sort of good old American Pennsylvania. Uh, and he was, uh, he was ordained right at the, right at the beginning of the 20th century, early 1900. And uh, in sort of exploring his his faith and his and his um, you know the his young life as a minister, you know he he had the natural struggle of any sort of curious young person who felt thwarted on on all sides by church hierarchies or by opportunities. It's got to be very fraught to combine your faith with things like career, you know. Right. I mean, that's a you, you you say that really well, and it's. I think that's a more profound statement than than it maybe seems at first blush. Like to be a professional spiritual leader. I mean, just imagine all the headaches that go with your job and hobby and marriage, and yeah. And now imagine just trying to 
you know, keep your religious faith and fervor pure in the face of that. Good luck. Right. And, and acting as an intermediary between for others, religious experience, right. And this guy who's like, whose wife won't let him uh, watch football on Sunday. But, uh, what happened to uh, Reverend Bachman was that he underwent a spiritual – he had a, a a lightning strikes moment. He was feeling uh, depressed and anxious and un uh, disconnected from the ch- from the church and sort of wandering in the in the desert and went to a uh, a religious seminar and uh, went to a religious seminar called the Keswick Convention. Which uh, which happened in in uh, in England, and in the course of sort of just one of these experiences, sitting in a church and the light streamed in from uh, from through a stained glass window, and he felt that the uh, that the resentments and the sort of dark feelings that he was carrying were lifted from him and lifted by virtue of a of an understanding, a very simple understanding that. What we were doing, what what he was doing as a religious person was uh, was doing a, a lot of talking, a lot of ego based um, projection, and not very much listening, not very much communing with the spirit, not very much um, uh, just sort of patient surrender to what what he imagined to be sort of i mean if it is an omniscient and all powerful god really what you should do is get out of the way figure out what god has in mind for you and and sort of allow yourself to be a vessel for god's commands it's interesting that his moment of connection is actually an idea it's an epiphany i mean it's you know many people i myself have felt kind of the inexplicable lightning of a burden that i feel comes from outside myself but you know the connection with an actual idea i need to do something different that's very powerful. It was, and it was, and he reduced it to a, a very simple sort of uh, mantra, which was he he understood his revelation to be that there are four absolutes necessary to live in a kind of um, in a state of spiritual evolution or spiritual uh, completeness. I like four. And the four absolutes. It's, it's, it's small enough that um, you can remember them, but it's big enough that it, you know, it seems like it covers the problem. Sure, there's a little bit of wiggle room in there where you can fit almost any problem. I mean, Buddha had four as well. I think it's a good number. What are the four? The four are absolute honesty. These are four practices that mm-hmm. you need to uh, that you need to f- uh, walk through life according to these four principles. Absolute honesty, absolute purity. These are open to interpretation. Sure. Absolute unselfishness and absolute love. Good luck. There they are, and if you can if you can bring to bear these four absolutes, uh, y- it can relieve you of spiritual malady. So he didn't. His revelation wasn't just that these four absolutes were uh, were uh, new principles, but in fact they had helped him understand that his resentments, that his ego, were things that inhibited his own connection to God, his own path through path in the world. So these were personally transformative first. And so in the course of describing this to others and, um, and sort of gathering young people together to say like, well, in order to practice this absolute honesty, uh, we need to sit in a circle and reveal our 
shames and our our failings, our our the lies we tell. Like as as we reveal this stuff about ourselves, we can be we're free from it. So he also developed some kind of program to help others with the structure of it. It evolved into a program because as he explained it to other people, they wanted to, I mean, in order to have, in order to practice absolute honesty, you need someone to listen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, no one wants a, a person newly charged with the task of being absolutely honest to like come home and say, honey, I have some things I need to right. <laughs> or I have some things I'm really excited to tell you. People already have kids for that. Yeah. So, uh, so what formed was a group called the Oxford group and it, uh, it, it happened at Oxford. The Oxford group became a kind of Christian movement, uh, not a revival movement, but a, a, a new Christian movement, which sought to really simplify the liturgy to this, to these basic four principles and to go out into the world and, and, make a sort of transformative um, bring, bring this transformative experience to the world. The Oxford group was amazingly successful in the early part of the 20th century and was people set up their own little programs. In they their did. Own and, 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 and Frank uh, Bachman went around the world as an emissary and he was welcomed and embraced by most religious, most Christian religious authorities that he met um, because there's nothing in these principles that really undermines a normal, you know, wh- wh- whatever, whatever the 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 church is yeah. that he comes in to to express his his revelation. It, it, he's not saying tear down these walls. Yeah, he's, he's not, not challenging any power structure. He's no. just putting some chairs in a circle. This is a a more home based way to put church principles into practice, right? Right, and and um. And the the idea being that that this was work that could help the people who who weren't who who were uh, finding their connection to the religion incomplete, the uh, the people that were maybe continuing to suffer, the people that were maybe outwardly prosperous, outwardly successful, but uh, but felt I- inside that they were. Unhappy, spiritually, uh, like all successful people, I right? <laughs> spiritually desperate. Um, so his uh, his Oxford group now has become a kind of Christian, like a like kind of a global Christian enterprise, um, non denominational Christian enterprise. Well, refocusing our attention to the United States, um, alcoholism at at this point is is the national pastime. It really was. And I think before before prohibition there was a uh there was a, a period of several decades where a recognition that drinking was a that, that hard drinking was a, a a spiritual malady started to become more of an awareness. A lot of the temperance movement was led by kind of religious fundamentalist types, right? Right. And prior to that you know, drunkenness, well, the life expectancy was only 40 years old. Who cared how, you know, you died of drunkenness or cholera or, uh, you know, arrows. Every town needs a town drunk. Right. Uh, but as I, and my speculation is with industrialization and as people lived longer and as people need, as people were required to do more, um, 
specialized work. Quality of life declining, maybe? Uh, the There was now uh, people that were suffering from alcoholism that were um, that were habitual drinkers stood in bolder contrast to what what a uh, like a, a well functioning prosperous person that there there mm. was they stood in bold relief and so it was it it became a cause celeb that alcohol was a uh, was a, a a life destroyer right destroying a happy home it's the same way we thought about street drugs in the 80s right. uh that brings us to the titular uh, focus of this episode, which um, which we like to do about an hour in, is to get back to the subject briefly. About an hour, about an hour in. Um, a man uh, colloquially colloquially known. Did I say that correctly? You said that uh, like you still drink. Colloquially <laughs> known. <laughs> You're a hilarious town drunk. <laughs> uh, by the name of Bill W. And Bill W. is known by uh, by his last. Initial only, um, because uh, he founded a group called Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous. The second word of that is, al- uh, is alcoholic. As the flower. The second word. <laughs> they take the anonymity seriously enough that even though he is uh, a celebrity and a founder of a major self-help religious movement, quasi-religious movement. His last name is not used. Was redacted for many years because anonymity was a uh, was a central precept to the uh, to the organization because at the time there was tremendous sort of social approbation. Um, Probably not too different now. Shame is what keeps people from seeking help sometimes, right? Yes, except now. I mean, being an alcoholic and a drug abuser is is it's understood to be. Uh, to be a spiritual malady, there's an awful lot of drama around it, and uh, people people exploit it for for glamour. Uh, yeah, but you're right that it's largely treated as an well should be treated as an illness and not as a as a moral failing. Well, and that, even that is still sort of de- depends on who you ask. But Bill W was a uh, a man who suffered from um, from alcoholism. He was a Vermonter who had uh, served in World War One. He was a businessman, sort of of varying success. Is there a connection um, between his his veteran status and his drinking? Uh, I think a lot of veterans of the of World War One, including my own grandfather, uh, that was a period where heavy drinking was a way of of kind of resolving, not remembering, not yeah. remembering, or or or, um, or managing your feelings. But Bill W uh, was pretty clear that he had started drinking before the war and enjoyed alcohol from the very beginning. He's a fan. Uh, and in the course of his, uh, of his heavy drinking, he, his wife was a woman by the name of Lois, Lois W let's call her. Uh, and Lois recognized that her husband had a, uh, had a drinking problem and they sought a lot of different, uh, remedies for it. And so this, this was, this was a, there was a sector for this now, like there this way, was ways to help you quit drinking there were a lot of them there was um there were there were a lot of uh different sort of alchemical solutions there was something called the medicines yeah the belladonna cure which was a kind of aversion therapy it was you know you give give an alcoholic every time you drink that's right and then they throw up and and you know the the idea being that if you vomit uh it's true that i don't eat cup of noodle anymore because i vomited once what 
You wouldn't have a cup of noodle? I used to love cup of noodle. And now it's, your body's very good at remembering, hey, this is the thing that made us, these are the berries that made us sick once. The problem with aversion therapies and alcohol is that... Um, is that alcohol already makes you throw up? It does. <laughs> and also, like alcohol, the appeal of it, or the pull of it, rather, is so powerful that um, you will continue drinking and destroy your family, lose your business, lose your house, your wife divorces you, your kids don't speak to you. A sore stomach is the least of your worries. That's right. And and the idea that you could just uh, vomit unpleasantly a few times and that would cure you of this thing that, you know, that people will drink themselves to death routinely um, is kind of a little bit of an underestimation mm. of the power of the drug. Anyway, Bill uh, W., in, in seeking um, – in seeking some kind of uh, relief from his alcoholic struggles, uh, he was a Vermonter, and this was at a this was in an era where people would summer in Vermont. It was a sort of a, uh, you know, a, in in his social class, wealthy people would take the train to Vermont and enjoy the mountains. Or right, whatever. he was he was uh, he was associated, or he he um, he was friends with, let's say, a man by the name of Roland Hazard, uh, who was a a uh, sort of Brahmin East Coast scion of wealthy uh, old money, and I can tell he's not an alcoholic because you said his last name. Well, uh, Roland Hazard was never a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, so but he okay. he was an alcoholic, and he was rich enough that he was uh, at one point he was analyzed by Carl Jung. He he traveled to Europe in order to uh, have Jung, you know. Uh, Evaluate him and advise him. And Jung uh, recognized that alcoholism was not a um, was not a mental problem, that but that it was a spiritual one. Hmm. And he believed that the only cure for it you you couldn't think your way out of it. The only cure for it was that you have a transformative experience. And so Roland Hazard, as a result of this consultation with Jung, came back and. Uh, the Oxford group was very fashionable at the time. It was in all the newspapers. It was the latest fad. Even on this side of the Atlantic? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It became very popular in America. I guess the, guy, um, the guy's an American even if he founded it over there. And right? Frank Bachman you know, brought it back here and saw, it, saw the power it could have in the United States. Um, and Bachman was not a typical evangelist in the sense he wasn't profiting from it. He wasn't trying to there's, – there's, you don't get any sense that he was that, – that this was a cynical – um, like this isn't a Scientology, right? He, this he wasn't is a, selling books and T-shirts. No, this was a thing that he that he truly believed was transformative. And so, as Bill sought refuge from his drinking, he became somewhat affiliated with the Oxford Group, and or or you know attended Oxford Group meetings. Uh, Roland Hazard used the principles of the Oxford Group to stop drinking himself. Principles being, you're talking about the absolute honesty and so forth, or, or, or just the the uh, the physical practice of a bunch of people sitting in chairs and no sitting telling and, stories and, and, and trying to be ruthlessly honest, trying to be unselfish, mm-hmm. trying to you know to practice these principles as as they say in AA. Uh, Roland did not actually manage to stay sober uh, through Oxford Group practice alone. Uh, Roland Hazard never actually joined AA. And Bill, although he got sober, uh, was having a rough ride, a, a bumpy path. 
And at one point, uh, he was working as a traveling salesman. Um, he was in Akron, Ohio. It's got to be the worst job for an alcoholic. Really bad. Alone I mean, in a new city, where would you go to? You, know, either you can sit in your hotel room and drink or go to a place where there's people, which is a tavern and, and drink. And what do you do if you go have a sales meeting and you fail to make right. the Right, there's also the stress of the job. And you go back to your hotel and really want to drink. And that's what happened with Bill. And in that in that moment of um, – in his moment of desperation, he actually called some Oxford group people there in, in Akron, Ohio, and said, hey, can you connect me with anybody, any Oxford members uh, hanging out here? He had the presence of mind to reach out. He I did, mean, that's, which is— That's impressive if he's feeling like, you know, desperate. And it feels very much in the spirit of the Oxford group that you would, in that moment, try to find somebody— to be unsparingly honest. That they're your first resource, yeah. And the person that he was put in touch with uh, by by the local uh, secretary of the group or whatever was a, a man also known within the program as Dr. Bob. So we can reveal their, um, their – we can break their anonymity here because the Omnibus is not an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. The Omnibus is a, is a science show. If it's an omnibus, yeah. Show. If it was an AA meeting, we would have cookies after. Right. Uh, Bill's uh, Bill W's last name is Wilson. Bill Wilson. Uh, Doctor Bob was also from Vermont, although their meeting it was coincidental. Their meeting huh. was in in Ohio. Is, is it a coincidence? Maybe there's something about that hearty Vermont hickory spirit UFOs. that leads you to UFOs, or it could be UFOs. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Bob was uh, was a man named Bob Smith. Who wait, wait was is a, it Robert Smith of the Cure? It's Robert Smith, yes. Is it Robert Smith of the Cure, though? It is, yes. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Love cats, baby, <laughs> love cats. Don't love drink. Uh, he was a, a, a surgeon who was a desperate alcoholic and would like have to have a couple of beers before going into surgery. Yeesh. And he also had been suffering for a long time. Uh, and and constantly relapsing, had found the Oxford Group, was trying to use Oxford Group technologies to recover from alcohol, and you know with varying degrees of success. And Bill called him in the middle of the night and said, "Let's get together, you know, and uh, maybe we can, um, you know, just keep each other sober tonight." And in the experience of the two of them being together there uh, in at meeting in Akron and. Both with this Oxford group uh, f- grounding mm-hmm. in a kind of in the idea that you could have this firsthand personal sort of transformation that would that you could prolong by by practicing these very simple sort of four precepts, they discovered that their desire to drink had been uh, had been relieved that they had that they truly felt that. Uh, that some burden had been lifted from their shoulders, as you've described. Transformation. Yeah, that's right. And they realized that that what they'd done was they had discovered a, a further innovation, which was that it was not simply enough to practice absolute honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love, but that you needed then to take that message to someone else that was still suffering. And that helps relieve your own suffering and maladies and worst urges as well. That's right. And if you look at the history of, of 
organized religion, there is always a component of spreading the message, right? Every, I mean, the Jews don't typically recruit, but most religions do want to try and go out and, um, and pacify the barbarians and bring the message to them. But it's not usually therapeutic for, you don't get the sense that, you know, Jesus was having a bad day. Well, that's the, that's the curious thing that from a comparative religion standpoint, how much of the, um, it's never, you're, you're absolutely right. It's never really, uh, explicitly said. It's not part of the story, right? Right. Like like, Muhammad was, uh, you know. I mean, you have a Christian obligation to spread the news, Mm -hmm. but it's not then also said, it's not also written that spreading the news is how you retain your own faith. Although I imagine that is a component of, I mean, you've, you have been a missionary. Yeah, I'm sure that's why, I mean, it's a big reason for the institutional insistence on like a two-year mission service for young Latter-day Saint kids is because, I mean, it's the most vulnerable time in a, in a young person's life. Specifically, think of all the trouble a young man can get up to between 19 and 21. Sure, you could be room-springing all over the place. What if you were doing the opposite of room-springing, like a room room falla? Right. You're, where all you're doing is kind of reinforcing your own beliefs by expressing them to others. But it's very explicit in AA, right? And it's not just because this strengthens your commitment to AA. It's because... It actually is the process by which you... That is the healing. You heal, yeah. right. That you cannot... It's not a means to an end. Right. You cannot be in AA and not bring that message to other... Or try to help people who are suffering. Do you, have you found that personally to be the most helpful thing for you? Does that seem to be the agent of change for you? It's absolutely different from proselytizing or uh, or evangelizing, uh-huh. right? You do not... In, in AA, you do not go to a bar and stand there <laughs> handing out pamphlets. <laughs> <laughs> right. Although maybe you should. That would be hilarious. It, it, it would be. It would be funny for one second. Uh, no, what you do is you make yourself available to people who, who are suffering. And it, Alcoholics Anonymous is the uh, they. Uh, one of the principles is that they, um, that they they don't recruit. They operate according to a principle of attraction rather than promotion. It goes the other way. Right. Like you are a resource for people to reach out to you when they need it. If someone is, if someone needs AA, they are already suffering enough to to find it. Right? You don't. Um, uh, if you're if you're out like canvassing schools, saying, "Hey, kids, come join AA," you're, that's not how the that's not how it works. Right? You have to already be in desperate straits to to need this kind of transformation. And I know you have been a resource to many, and are probably still, to many people who do need that. And I don't know, what what does it do to you? I mean, the the selflessness of it. I mean, if you think about back to the Oxford group, and the, and, uh, the principles of the Oxford group were transformed by Bill W. and Dr. Bob into the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which are... Um, which break out those ideas into uh, steps that you can follow. It basically, but they, inst- they seem still clearly based on things like honesty and unselfishness, and so they, forth. They are, and and um, and they are, and it and the, it, it became an institution. Admitting you right. have a problem is honesty, and but that's the thing. All of them, honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love, are all interactive values. You cannot really get very far being unselfish. 
you can't by go, yourself. You can't go into the desert and be an unselfish hermit. Yeah. Right. Or nor can you really love. I mean, all of those are interactive. All of them need to, in order to activate them, you need to, they're, they're, they're values of, of giving. Mm-hmm. And if what you have is uh, the experience of having been tormented and then having been relieved of that torment by someone else's help, but you know, by an intervention of someone else's goodwill, selfless goodwill, no one in Alcoholics Anonymous makes any money. No one, there's no, you don't get anything out of it, right? That's not a, um, it's not a Ponzi scheme. There's, and it's beautiful that it's like in its what it's in its how old is AA seventy years old. Or so something. they so Dr. Bob and and Bill W had this first encounter in 1935. Oh, okay. Um, the Oxford Group actually uh, underwent a transformation right after this too. Frank Bachman uh, watched as the world rearmed in advance of World War II, and um, and he went to Germany. And he tried to get an audience with Hitler. He tried to convert uh, the Nazis to uh, Oxford group thinking. So much so that— It becomes like a pacifist organization? Yeah. So much so that the, the, the Nazis identified him as an enemy of national socialism and, <laughs> you know, like uh, were— um, like he had him followed and, and, you know, whatever, Himmler and Borm, and they spoke out against him. Um, he changed the name of the Oxford group to the Moral Rearmament Society. Rearmament Society. So as we were rearming in guns, he believed that we needed to morally rearm. And that really resonated with the world at the time. Huh. The, the organization ended up changing its name to the MRA, which is an unfortunate <laughs> acronym. Uh, and the Moral Rearmament Society uh, flourished in the during the war and after he uh, uh Bachman played a a major role in like the anti-colonial era uh, he was credited by oh like he's an influence on Gandhi or? yeah he met with Gandhi many times and they had a, a great admiration for one another but also he was some, he played a instrumental role in the uh, liberation of Morocco or the, the, the Morocco and Tunisia's like liberation, Independence. but also he acted as a facilitator of German and French, uh, friendship in the post-war world. He, it's funny that he's a, becomes a moral authority without ever actually having any kind of portfolio right. or, or position. He just, he built this, he, he built this way of thinking. Uh, Bill W. and Dr. Bob wrote down their version of the Oxford group thinking in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and started having basically what were Oxford group meetings, but exclusive to people that were, that were struggling with alcohol. And, um, and they adopted the idea of uh, the principle of anonymity within the group so much so that when Bill, when Alcoholics Anonymous took off and became um, a, like a socially transformative group, mm-hmm. Uh, Yale offered Bill a uh, an honorary degree, and he turned it down because he didn't want to be named, or didn't didn't want he he didn't want it to be about himself. He didn't as a as a gesture of of um, of egolessness. He turned down the degree, and Time Magazine wanted to put him on the cover, and he refused that honor too. It's not very twentieth century, and he was only. 
outed as Bill Wilson at his death when journalists wrote his obituary. And it was the first time that, you know, that anyone kind of outside of the scuttlebutt of the of Alcoholics Anonymous knew his name. People must have known. So it's nice that they respected the the culture of the group. I, I under, I've understood that it's actually a difficulty in trying to study the efficacy of these kind of programs is that the strict anonymity of the AA structure means that no clinical trial is really ever possible. Um, and even in discussing it on the program, like I, I think I, I've been clear that I'm not um, advocating for it uh, or I'm not acting as a spokesperson for it. I don't, uh, I don't really even claim membership in it, only that I have experience with it and I'm, I'm trying to describe its foundation. But a positive experience for you, I mean, if you're asked point blank. Oh, my sense of it is that, you know, alcoholism is, and, and drug addiction are incredibly complicated and pernicious problems in a human being. And the if there were a cure that, that, uh, that worked universally, um, we would all know mm-hmm. what it was. Uh, there is no one cure and there is no sure fire cure. But in my experience, the um, – the the principles and the structure of 12-step recovery movements, if you go into those rooms with a sincere desire to, to, to make a change or a sincere desire just to be, just to be open to the prospect of change, um, you, you, your prognosis is good. Uh, it's just that it's, it, the, the hardest step is the one across that threshold. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's difficulty ahead in the future in a more secular society of, you know, just a, a group of people being willing to recognize a malady as having a spiritual component. I mean, that's a barrier to entry to some people in AA today. It's a it's higher a, power. Come on. It's a major barrier of entry. I think most people that, uh, I mean, a, anyone who is looking for a reason not to go to AA, you can f- yeah, those are easy to find. And a major one I have is, a pretty good one. Yeah. You're not alcoholic. You never had alcohol. Right. right. Maybe I am an alcoholic. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a dry alcoholic. I, if, we'll never if know. I ever try a sip. But uh, but a lot of people do not want uh that religious component because it does feel like a uh, a you know, it has it has the uh the tint of a cult or of a of a group we're we're used to religious groups sort of trying to get a toehold in your life. And then gradually they introduce more and more uh, like strange performance. And pretty soon you're, you are wearing uh, matching Nike tennis shoes and uh, castrating yourself and dying in a bunk bed. Uh, But those are the three principles, but I think anyone, anyone living, even someone atheistic has to acknowledge that there are, uh, that there are, aspects to our inner life that are very difficult to um, to comprehend, if, if nothing else. And I assume that's what AA does, right? They define higher power broadly enough that you just mean anything bigger than yourself. Anything other than yourself, huh. right? Anything, the, anything where you can, um, where you can, uh, you can make a special plea and say uh, that these are, that, my own ego, my own suffering isn't any more like 
apprehendable or solvable by me alone. And um, it's, it's pretty genius because the actual desperation of your position is what leads to the solution. Like yeah. you're convincing yourself every day that there's nothing you can do because of just how badly things are going. Right. And, and that is, that is a, a, a tremendously powerful admission. And from it, uh, all things can follow, right? But, but it's the most difficult thing for someone suffering from a spiritual malady to do is acknowledge that they no longer have the power to solve that problem for themselves. And, uh, and you know, from that small revelation, uh, you know, a, a, a tremendous good has been accomplished, I think, by the, by the, the, you know, I think of traditions that are still, the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous are still alive, right? There, nothing is, although those, we've decided, I think, that those books are canon, like, because it's, because it is not hierarchical and because this problem is so individual in every, in every person, um, it means that the, um, that whatever the practice is, is, it's never static. It's, still alive every single day someone newly admits that they um that like humility is the is the first step and um it is impressive that 80 85 years in or whatever it's still just this grassroots thing and has not developed any kind of apparatus with its own organizational troubles and scandals it's each it's, meeting it's totally is, resistant to that yeah every meeting is a completely autonomous organism um, and from one week to the next, I wonder if it's a model for, to solve other problems. Well, it, so it is employed that way. Right. And, and that's the danger, uh, because as soon as you take it out and start employing it as a methodology, it becomes ripe to be misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Right. As soon as you say like, oh, this is how all town meetings should be conducted. And I'm going to take that out and call it Ken Jenningsism. You know, like you see it, you see 12 step, uh, the 12 step process being bastardized in multi-level marketing and everywhere. And, and, and in fact, any system in which the courts sentence people to 12 step programs, you have, you have missed the point, right? You don't get sentenced to, appear at a 12 step meeting it 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 is it, it, the well, whole the whole miracle of it is the voluntary first step and so you go to you go to meetings all the time and you see people who are sitting there just like sullenly waiting through the meeting in order to get their little slip of paper from the court signed by the person chairing the meeting and nobody wants i mean it's not like the people in the meeting don't want them there it's like yeah if the if if this works if if, if it helps you that's great I, I you can't i know you can't talk about meetings but on some level does it ruin the vibe it must ruin the vibe. Depends on how small the meeting is. Yeah. I mean, but the, the thing is, there's always somebody that comes into the meeting and is like, I don't think I belong here. It's part of getting there, right? I used to get drunk and go to AA meetings. Is that more fun? Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that concludes Bill W. Entry 122.NU0603. Certificate number 19544 in the omnibus. Now, uh, social media is also a spiritual malady, but mm. uh, in our day, John and I were uh, had not yet 12-stepped our way out of it. We're still at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, and jointly at Omnibus Project on various social media platforms. 
We love the shenanigans of the Futurelings mm-hmm. on Facebook. Uh, occasionally, people will email us feedback at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. And we help, uh, it helps, uh, we incorporate that into our addenda episodes that we now offer as a monthly benefit for donors. If you would like to subscribe, uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Uh, we received physical mail at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I recently received these delightful chick tracks. I put out a call. Aww. Speaking of speaking of evangelizing for these odd little comic books. And uh, last time I checked the mail, a couple people had uh, obliged. Oh, uh, nice. Feather sent me one that she got for the shoe store she worked at. Somebody returned a pair of damaged shoes with a chick tract in it. Perhaps in hopes that that would make up for the damage on the shoes she was trying to get a refund for. I would be mm-hmm. less likely to grant a refund if somebody sent me one of those, but that's just me. <laughs> Jason sent me a nice stack of them, but he apologized if he doesn't have his favorites. He did not have the D&D one, uh, the worst anti-Catholic one, and one he vaguely remembers where two truckers debate about Jesus being a sissy. Hmm. I, so hmm. he, It's kind of a bummer that he sent he sent me a bunch of chick tracks and then told me about better ones that he's not going to send me. <laughs> But uh, no, we're we're delighted to receive physical artifacts, and those uh, we put up on the Patreon as well. Uh, Futurelings, uh, we hope and pray that we do keep doing this show long enough to cover all of my thoughts on comparative religion. But if the worst comes soon, this recording may be the last show I did on comparative religion, which is. Uh, which would be desperate. But if Providence, in the form of whatever higher power works for you... Here, this is me opening my first beer. (laughs) Uh, Providence allows. We hope we'll be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.